Hey guys, when you search for Bible-related stuff, virtually all the results are from Christian pastors and apologists. Yeah, to find real biblical criticism, you need to dig down. Most people never even learn about all the scholarship out there, which debunks a lot of the evangelical claims. Yeah, there's an entire well-funded industry of biased Christian content out there. Our show tries to offer a counter-argument to them, but we rely on our listeners to keep the show going week after week. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project. Thank you to all those supporting us. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm John. And I'm Ben. And this is the Skeptics Bible Project. We read the Bible so you don't have to. I don't care too much for preachers. I don't like to go to church. But I'd hate to meet St. Peter when my body leaves this earth. How you doing today, Ben? I'm doing good, John. How are you? I'm good. So today we're going to talk a little bit about inerrancy and um, what that doctrine teaches and um, ultimately its effect on the church. So we've talked before about some of the contradictions in the Bible and some of the errors in the Bible that we see when we read it, but the majority of Christians hold on to the doctrine of inerrancy. Um, So we're going to take a close look at that. Um, and we're going to analyze some of the specific teachings in the Bible that believers have debated uh, and divided themselves over for centuries. And then maybe if we have time, Ben, we can do another segment of Bible versus Bible. What do you think? Uh, that would be awesome. So let's talk about what what the doctrine of inerrancy is. What What do you understand it to be? Well, growing up, we were always taught that the words in the Bible are God's words. That was the way that he communicated his truth, that we should believe every word, um, that every word had a purpose uh, for our lives, to give us wisdom, to teach us uh, and lead us on the road to salvation, but also that 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 purpose could never be disrupted, that that word was passed down um, throughout the uh, history of the church. I always believed the same words that were written in our Bible were the same words that were in the original uh, letters of Paul and the original Gospels. Yeah, I mean, what's what? While I was looking into this, what really stood out to me is how most doctrines of the church um, really go back millennia, you know, right to the to the first century. And I just, growing up in the church, just kind of took it for granted that, of course, inerrancy is one of those things. This goes all the way back. But it's fascinating to realize that it's it's actually a very modern thing. So in the Catholic world, it was really formulated in Vatican II, which was in the mid-60s. Um, and Vatican II uh, has a kind of a, a different interpretation than what I was used to. Um, in the Protestant Church, and the and we'll get into uh, what Vatican II, what the Catholic view of it is, and the and in the Protestant world, it was really in the mid seventies uh, with the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy that kind of lays out what their understanding of inerrancy is, and it was signed onto by a lot of prominent uh, evangelical leaders, and to this day, I think it's pretty much um, held as as the like official stance of what inerrancy is. So um, I just looked a little bit on Wikipedia about the Chicago statement. Uh, Under the statement, inerrancy applies only to the original manuscripts, which no longer exist, but which its adherence claims can be ascertained from available manuscripts with great accuracy. In the statement, inerrancy does not refer to a blind literal interpretation, and that history must be treated as history, poetry as poetry, hyperbole and metaphor as hyperbole and metaphor, generalization and approximation as what they are, and so forth. Um, It also makes clear that the signers deny that biblical infallibility and inerrancy are limited to spiritual, religious, and redemptive themes, exclusive of assertions in field of history and science. So that gets into a little bit about uh, what we're going to talk about with the Catholic view. The Catholic view, as I understand it, of inerrancy is really limited more to 
what the Bible is teaching in related in relation to salvation. So a Catholic theologian would be less likely to try to argue in favor of no minuscule contradictions and chronological problems. They would be much more okay looking at that as as just kind of small errors of various authors. But when they're talking about things related to salvation, um, it is without error. So as expressed by the Second Vatican Council, it says, the books of scripture must be acknowledged as teaching solidly, faithfully, and without error that truth which God wanted put into sacred writing for the sake of salvation. Yeah, I think that um, the term inerrancy is really problematic because it creates such a high standard. The Chicago statement um, essentially was saying that we have extremely close copies now. Uh, I know that Wayne Grudem in his uh, Systematic Theology book uh, says that our present manuscripts are, are for the most purposes the same as the original manuscripts and the doctrine of inerrancy therefore directly concerns our present manuscripts as well. Right. And it's really hard for me to parse that out. I mean, how do, how do we, what does the Chicago statement mean? What does inerrancy mean if they're talking about a document that we don't have? In the Chicago statement, it says something to the effect of, we can have a high degree of confidence that we have the crux of, of what the original documents um, said. And to me, that is a difficult thing, because if you're teaching that this book is without error, but we don't actually have the book at all, we just have kind of a game of telephone copies of copies of copies of it, and then we can get into how reliable or unreliable that process has been. Um, to me, it really takes a lot of the wind out of the sail of that doctrine. Yeah, I totally agree. It relies on a circular argument ultimately because <laughs> like um, I know that Grudem's argument is God can't tell a lie because the Bible says that God can't tell a lie. Therefore, God can't lie in his scripture. Therefore, scripture must be true. But again, that relies on a verse from scripture. Um, so and these type of like circular arguments uh, happen all the time some of the claims that they make are just so audacious. You know, even uh, Grudem is arguing that it's a biblical concept and that uh, Christians have basically always believed it, but literally states that it's, they've used the term inerrancy for only a hundred years. Um, <laughs> it, it's not like that term has been around forever. Right. No, I mean, we were talking the other day, Ben, I remember a little bit about Martin Luther. It's really interesting because, Martin Luther, who is, you know, a hero to uh, most Protestants, um, you know, one of the founders of the Protestant Reformation, he felt pretty free to criticize the Bible at points or say this is something that's in the Bible that you really shouldn't listen to. Again, that's because there was no doctrine of inerrancy at that time. And um, now if you were to, let's say, read an epistle in the New Testament, and say, this is an epistle of straw, you would be criticized in the church. Uh, it would be met with a lot of scorn. But Martin Luther felt very free to do that. So this is an example of, you know, when when Christians claim that they're teaching kind of like this rock-solid doctrine that has, been, that has come directly down for Jesus in an unchanging way, well, you can see the evolution of it happening right there. How I, I, I felt when I was regularly attending church, I felt like, well, why is it not, why am I not allowed to make the same type of arguments that Martin Luther made? And what, what ultimately happens is some of the things that the reformers and other theologians that came after him have said have, have almost been codified as a form of scripture themselves, which is, goes completely against the Protestant view of sola scriptura where they like they would claim that we're not using tradition at all we're using the bible alone however they're very clearly um strongly leaning on um their own traditions yeah it's an interesting argument or an interesting doctrine if you examine it from a historical perspective because you can't really have a doctrine of inerrancy without having some sort of a divine 
production process for the scripture to be put together. I mean, I don't subscribe to the conspiracy theory that Constantine wrote the Bible. That's uh, that's totally uh, false. But there was a process that was happening up until that point where scripture was being decided on and what was going to be put in the Bible was being decided on. Um, and the final decisions were made at the, that council. Um, and then when you get to the Reformation, you have sort of another historical moment that opens up this possibility uh, where, again, because of the 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 slow uh, divorce from the Catholic Church that happens with Martin Luther, um, and our Bible is in the constant process of being edited even now. So you can't just have inerrancy. You also have to have inerrancy over all this other process that's happening. Yeah. And all yeah, this other I, production that's happening. And it's all extra. All of that is, again, formulated without a scriptural basis. So if you believe in inerrancy, like you have to buy into the initial concept before you can even construct this outer defense for that concept, if that makes sense. No, it, it totally makes sense because I think we're talking about kind of two different problems. You, you number one, have the problem of, okay, in these 66 books, are there any errors and if so, are there any like serious doctrinal errors? Um, but also you're talking about, okay, why do we even trust that these are the 66 books? I mean, there were, there were many other books and there were, like you said, there was a, there was a process that came up with, you know, deciding that it should be this, these 66 books. Now, uh, most Christians I know would say, well, the Holy Spirit was overseeing that process I think the counter I would say to that is that, okay, but there are, to this day, other churches that have different books, um, and they go on different translations, and they'll, they have the Apocryphal, for instance, or maybe the Book of Enoch is still used in some churches, and if the Holy Spirit was overseeing it, why would he give different people different books if, if it's the Word of God? So I, I think it's a really complicated problem. Uh, so all of that's true. It's also like it ignores the first 200 or 300 years where there was no codified scripture. And it also sort of like ignores the message of those books. Those people did not expect people to be reading these letters 2000 years from now, 2000 years from when they wrote them. Right. They expected Jesus to come back in their lifetime. I mean, that's explicitly stated in some of these books. They expected it to happen as they were living, they were worried about the people that were dying, whether they would be able to meet up with the ones that were still alive when they were taken up to with with Christ. So this doctrine, again, is just like a very historic, it's, it's formulated in a historical moment and, and because of a historical moment. Yeah, and we're going to talk a lot about that, how the, the application of a lot of the teachings in Scripture uh, are just super difficult in our modern world because you're reading these books that were not at all written to us in our modern context. So we're trying to answer questions, uh, abortion comes to mind or whatever. And you're trying to answer these questions that were not, you know, an issue at the time that the Bible was written. And you're trying to derive these teachings for where if you are like an originalist, like the way you originalists like to interpret the constitution, you want to try to jump into the mind of the author. Well, clearly the authors were not talking about, uh, like the, like revelation. Um, I, I think the majority of scholars reading Revelation will say it's talking about really the fall of Jerusalem and it's talking about Rome as being like a great evil force. And um, when when many Christians read it now, they look at it as like this future science fiction apocalypse nightmare. And I'm like, the, I don't think the author of Revelation um, would be happy with that, <laughs> with how people have used his work. Um, but yeah, I think inerrancy opens up so many issues and it's so hard to touch on all of them, but ultimately speaking, I feel like it's, it's such a hopeful, like a wishful thinking, um, teaching because everyone wants to say like, we have the authority of God here. So you should listen to what we're saying on these issues because this comes from God without error. And if you can't say that, it really takes away a lot of the strength behind the church because it's, then it becomes a lot more 
uh, okay, well, you can kind of have your interpretation and I can have mine. And if you get to this verse you don't like, it's, that's not a big deal. Just don't apply it because it's, again, the Bible's not without error. This is just humans writing it. And you, the church can't have that. So the way the Catholic Church deals with it is, like I said, their view of infallibility, which is a sometimes interchangeable with the word inerrancy, sometimes it's distinguished. I mean, infallibility, the way I un- have always understood it, is is kind of a lower term than inerrancy that basically says what I said before, that only in what the Bible is trying to teach regarding salvation is the Bible without error. And anyway, but the, but the Catholic Church makes up for that because they also have the church tradition as being authoritative. So, for instance, the Pope is authoritative. When he speaks ex cathedra, it's supposed to be perfect, what he what he says. Uh, and I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole, but that is also quite problematic. So a, a lot of this has to do with authority and how do you tell people that th- these are things that um, you should pay attention to. And I think, the, I think inerrancy really like provides a lot of that leverage. Um, Roman Catholics have 73 books in their Bible. Eastern Orthodox have 81 books in their Bible and Protestants have 66. And if you really want to, like an in-depth look at that, you can just go into Wikipedia and look at like, um, various canons of scripture. And it's like this huge complicated chart going through history. I often think of early churches who would have something like, uh, I don't know, the gospel of Peter or the Didache or the Shepherd of Hermes or like some of these, some of these ancient books that we still have that they were considered scripture for these churches. And they thought they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And then later, like centuries later, we said, no, those aren't inspired by the Holy Spirit. So I I think that, again, it just, it raises so many more questions than it answers. Um, If you don't have the originals, we just have to say, well, there's a, we have a high degree of confidence that this is, this is all good. Even though if you look at like the earliest manuscripts, we have virtually nothing from the first two centuries of the church. And what we do have, we see the most amount of errors in, but I think they would have to say, yes, we, you ultimately still have to have like a faith that, that the Holy spirit has really preserved what God wants us to have here. And to me, that almost gets into almost like a mysticism or like a, a spiritualism that, that just have faith that God is always steering you in the right direction, which to me is countered by the idea that we just have so many different teachings on everything biblical, different experts and scholars and churches all over the place debating on every issue, you know, really smart people that are completely at odds on some major doctrines of the church, and they're, they're not wrong. I mean, if a Calvinist is arguing with an Arminian, and we'll get into this when we start talking about the church splits, is the Calvinist wrong? Is the Arminian wrong? I would say they're both right, depending on which verse you read. And um, that's because the Bible is not teaching some kind of like single solitary teaching. You have many different authors uh, teaching different things, sometimes directly at odds with each other, sometimes from a different perspective. And... um, trying to force that into a single inerrant doctrine, I think has led the church into um, being fractured in, in, a, uh, in an unprecedented way. If we, we already talked about the different um, you know, Bibles that people have with different number of books, but just globally speaking, this is according to the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, um, there is currently... 41,000 Christian denominations. Um, that's a lot. And why is that? Uh, I, I would say it is because you're taking a very complicated book with lots of different teachings and you're trying to force it into one single doctrine and you have people coming out on all different sides of that. So again, if the Bible is inerrant and teaching one thing, does it really matter if it's not clear? If people, including like some of the smartest theologians, read it and come to completely different opinions about this, what does it even mean to say it's inerrant? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that uh, on one hand, there's like an ultimate reliance on just like, you're going to be led by the Holy Spirit or, you know, that's what it comes down to. God's in control. 
Um, and so you can ultimately trust that he's communicating his message and that he's communicating his truth through the scriptures uh, in an inerrant way. And so the reliance is all on putting faith in the doctrine of inerrancy, essentially, rather than putting faith in Jesus. Um, I would say that that's not something that's a biblical concept. Um, and I would also say that that's something that should be able to be tested pretty easily historically. Um, if you want to say that God is in a spiritual way preserving his text in order to communicate his perfect message to us, um, which I think is, would be even a weaker definition than inerrancy, then there shouldn't be any problems with the text. There shouldn't be textual variants. There shouldn't be contradictions between authors. Right. So if you were to find any of those things in ancient documents, if you were finding the text changing all the time and more variations than words that are in the Bible, um, or if you were finding that one author was saying one thing and another author was saying the complete opposite of that, or that one author was using a word to mean one thing and another author was using it to mean almost like the exact opposite thing, the exact opposite concept, um, or if you had even internal contradictions, or one author was saying that an event took place in it one day and another author was saying it took place on another day, or uh, an event happened twice uh, that only happened once with another author. All of these things you, you would think that you wouldn't find in the text that's inerrant. Right. If you, your Harry Potter book came um, from the printer with all those problems in it, you would send it back and you would demand your money back. I mean, it's, it's, you would expect from a text that God is preserving that it would be preserved. Right. So I think that creates a problem. And then I also just think that, um, even the Catholic, uh, definition is problematic. If you, if we're going to say that, Scripture communicates its message perfectly, but we have all these people that are interpreting it in different ways, and that Scripture may be saying different things in different places. I think that makes the Catholic uh, idea problematic also, um, because how is it going to communicate God's truth if if one author is saying one thing and another author is saying another thing on something as essential as how are you saved? Well, exactly. I mean, I was going to say the same thing with with the Catholic view. So if the if the Bible is um, perfect in what it's saying about salvation, you really wouldn't find massive church splits over things such as saved by faith alone or, um, you know, free will versus predestination or whatever. These are, you know, huge, some of the biggest church splits have happened over those issues. And let's be honest, the Bible just is not clear on those things. That's why there's a church split. You can have experts on both sides debating it really well and, you know, reasonable people coming to either conclusion. So I, I just think that, you know, part of the problem for me is that a lot of doctrines, let's say somebody says to you, the Holy Spirit lives inside me. That's, that's not a testable uh, thing. And I wouldn't argue with somebody on that. I wouldn't say, no, no, the Holy Spirit is not living inside you. I, I may, I may say, well, with, I won't hold on to that belief without any evidence, but, but my point is it's unfalsifiable. And what I have noticed with Christians on this uh, topic of inerrancy is a real hesitancy to even talk about inerrancy. They don't want to deal with it. And I think part of the problem is inerrancy kind of gets into the realm of falsifiability a little bit. A lot of claims in Christianity really can't be tested. This is a claim that actually can be attested a little bit. This is like the whole effort of biblical criticism or higher criticism is um, testing, you know, some of these, some of the claims of these doctrines. And um, to me, it really isn't worth holding a belief in something if it's not falsifiable, because ultimately it's just somebody claiming something and, and persuading you to believe it. But, but this is something that we can actually like latch onto a little bit and really dig into and test. I think that, so you say that the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, lives in my heart or God communicates uh, to me or, you know, I've had an experience where my life has been transformed or uh, he communicates his truth through his word to me and I hear his voice through his the written word and that's how I know it's true. Or I feel like I've had some sort of an esoteric experience where I've really felt the presence of God. 
all of these things are things that a lot of Christians will say if we look at wide a wide range of uh, denominants, I guess, uh, people from different denominations. Um, that is the testimony of people in every major religion. When you study sociology of religion, you understand that that's the religious experience that people have now to varying degrees. If it's a more esoteric religion, then you're going to have more of an esoteric experience. If uh, you're in a more Eastern uh, faith, you're going to have a more Eastern experience. Um, but ultimately, that testimony, yeah, it's hard to argue with. I mean, part of the reason that people are attracted to religion is that it helps them have a meaning that they can put on their lives. Um, and I'm always reluctant to criticize that that aspect of it. But it'll be a perspective where you'll have to examine other religions as well. Um and I think that Christians live in a really insulated communities a lot of times, so they don't have a lot of uh, communication with people in the quote-unquote world. Um, and so they may not know that like a Muslim has a similar testimony or similar experience. Right. Um, uh, they just sort of assume that the truth of their own experience and then they don't have that sort of counter-narrative. Just look at it at a more scientific perspective, the religious experience. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. Like when I hear um, people from other religions talking about their experience, like how similar it really is. And honestly, like if you kind of disregard things like some of the specific teachings of Christianity or, or whatever their specific God is, a lot of what they're saying is exactly the same. It's kind of like this spiritual feeling that they get that's leading them toward positivity or that's giving them some sort of direction in life. And it's very, very similar. And I think what you said is very true that doing a little bit of research like a, of comparative religions, I think will really open up your eyes a lot. In the Wikipedia on biblical inerrancy, I underlined one line and I just wanted to talk about it a little bit. Um, Complete and restricted inerrancy. Some literalists or conservative Christians teach that the Bible lacks error in every way in all matters. Chronology, history, biology, sociology, psychology, politics, physics, math, art, and so on. Um, that's really, I think that perspective in America, especially, um, is the dominant view. I think that just based on my experience, and, and I would love anyone else to chime in on this, but I really do think that, you know, it's all like the people that have a more nuanced view of inerrancy are people that have studied some of these problems and have, uh, you know, understood like the transmission process of how we got the Bible. But I think a lot of people by default just say, no, the Bible's perfect. It doesn't err in any way. And they don't even make the... Um, they don't even make the caveat about well only original only the original manuscripts i mean they will just they will just simply go to the modern english bible that they have in front of them and say this is perfect and um so i think a lot of when we you know when we do bible versus bible and we talk about various contradictions i think those are the people that we're talking to in many cases i think that there's a lot of more uh enlightened if you will or progressive christians that will really not have a big problem with a lot of the little contradictions that, uh, that we come up with. Of course, I could also come up with ones that I think are bigger contradictions that would be problematic for them. But in general, I think those people will not really have a big problem with, you know, a chronological error uh, in the Gospels, for instance. But again, I think the view of most Christians in America is that, no, there are no errors at all in anything that the Bible teaches. And um, so I think a lot of what we're doing on this podcast is t talking to those people and trying to um, give our perspective a little bit and maybe maybe change some minds along the way. Yeah, I think that you're right. That view of inerrancy is probably what most people believe in the evangelical church. So when they go to church and they sit and they hear their pastor speak, they think that the Bible is a perfect guide on science. The Bible is a perfect guide on every aspect of life. It's been transmitted perfectly. What we have is 100% God's word. There's never been any changes to any word in the Bible. Um, the second point is 
there's a huge group of pastors that also believe that, I right. think, because there's a bunch of untrained pastors who didn't necessarily go to seminary that are, are and, and this is not knocking them necessarily either. But if you are like ordained by your church, um, you don't necessarily go and study textual criticism or historical criticism um, at, at even an evangelical seminary, let alone a, a mainstream seminary. Um, you may not know this stuff either, but there are pastors who do know this stuff. They've known this stuff since the 1800s and they don't tell their congregants this. And I don't, I mean, I can't completely blame them because this stuff does raise a lot of questions and problems. And again, you raised that you talked about it before. People don't want to talk about this stuff. I mean, I find it extremely interesting. I love to talk about it. That's why I'm doing this podcast. I find it one of the most fascinating things to talk about um, all of these different issues. But it's taxing to get people to even have the conversation with you when you're literally taking the book that they believe in and, and saying... We don't have to use anything but this book that you say is perfect and has no errors. And let me just show you a couple places where it's problems. I mean, I had a conversation with a a relative about the resurrection um, narrative and who was at the Mm -hmm. tomb um, when the witnesses got there. We we can't even agree on who the witnesses are. But when they get there and find whoever's in the tomb, man, angels, um, you know, the person's immediate response was to combine some combine the stories together into another narrative that doesn't really match what, you know, Mark is saying or the author of Luke is saying or the author of John is saying. Um, And I said, like, if you only had Mark and then you compared your version of the story and you said, like, are they talking about the same event? You would say, no, they're clearly not even talking about the same event. Like, because it's so far gone from any of the perspectives that the people who are telling the story and the gospels yeah. are telling. And so you're not even taking their, like you're doing a disservice to their account because your account now is something totally different. I think that like pastors have known this stuff. They should be telling their congregants. Like they, they don't have to be afraid of this stuff. It's okay to examine the book that you believe is perfect closely. Most just regular evangelical churches, People are not necessarily going in there to think about anything. They want to just sing some praise songs and go out feeling good with a message right. um, that's going to like encourage them to get through till the next Sunday when they can recharge exactly. the again. Yeah, I think um, what getting back to what you were talking about a little bit about how people try to harmonize um, the Bible. They have a problem. Like in the Gospels, you see it all the time. One Gospel author is saying X. Another Gospel author describing the exact same account is saying Y. And then if you believe in inerrancy and those two things can't possibly contradict, well, how do you deal with it? Well, one major way that apologists try to deal with that is to harmonize the two. So they basically say... They end up, and we can. We're going to go on this podcast through lots of examples of this over time about um, different contradictions and how people try to get out of them. I'll give you one example. If one gospel says that there was one angel, and another gospel describing the same account says there was two angels, well, they'll harmonize it and say, well, the one gospel that said there was one angel, just because he only mentions one, does not mean that there actually wasn't two there. So it's not actually a contradiction, or. In the case of the birth narratives, which is one for me one of the most fascinating things to study, the birth narrative of Matthew and Luke and compare them, where the they're really telling complete two completely different stories about how um, Jesus was conceived, the uh, how you know where he was born, what happened, what the circumstances around his birth. Uh, there's two completely competing stories. And what Christians do is they mash them together. They mash Matthew and Luke together to have it tell one cohesive story, which has like Mary and Joseph like running all over the place from from here to Egypt. And again, we'll like I'm not going to go into all the details now, but just to say that you know if you read Raymond Brown on this, um, he he can uh, go into a lot more detail and explain it much better than I can. But it's just completely ludicrous. And ultimately, what you're doing 
you're not believing the gospel of Matthew and you're not believing the gospel of Luke. You're believing your own gospel, this a fifth gospel that you've created on your own just to get out of these, um, these problems. And the, if I were the author of one of these books, I wouldn't be too happy with that. I wouldn't be too happy with someone says, oh, well, there's this whole other major detail that, that I left out that I'm just going to add into my story here. Um, and having a more human understanding of how these books were written um, and what, it, what is Matthew trying to say? Why is he trying to say it that way? I like uh, trying to force it into a historical narrative without any error. Um, I don't see any biblical mandate for that. And I see it kind of a, a ludicrous thing to do. Yeah, I think that um, there, I agree. There's no there's no biblical mandate to do it. So you lose the message of John, who is meticulously crafting a, a masterpiece of a message for his purposes in the way he tells the story. If you just make his details and the way he tells the story conform with the synoptic right. gospels, like you miss out on what John is trying to tell you by the way he tells the story, you know, at a certain point. Yes, you can twist it however you wanted, and then you can draw whatever theological conclusions you want. But if you're missing out on what the author is trying to tell you, then what's the point of trying to draw a conclusion? Because we just have it as a problem with all these different books of the Bible, trying to make them all say the same thing. Yeah, I think that talking about the events that led up to Jesus' birth well, like you said, the most Christians that we know are going to have all kinds of problems with what we're saying. They're going to say, no, there is no contradiction. Mary could have gone here. Joseph could have done this. And all of these things could still work out. So it's not a violation of Aristilian logic or whatever. Now, I think to your point, it doesn't really matter if it's like a mathematical contradiction, because if it's a contradiction to, and, and by the way, I believe there are. Um, like mathematical contradictions in the Bible, but we won't go into those at the moment, but we will uh, on future episodes. But it doesn't matter because it's if you have experts on both sides that still can't figure it out, whether or not there's a way that you can patch it together and make it worth math work mathematically, it's irrelevant because to a reader that like uh, it's still an error. To any common sense reading of it, it's a problem. And it's the same pattern we find yeah. in any other work of, you know, ancient work. It's the, the Bible is not unique. There are, there are errors in uh, Josephus. There's errors in Tacitus and on and on and on. Uh, the Bible just displays the exact type of problems that you see in every other book. There's, there, there's no like um, attribute of perfection that, that people, that experts see when they read the Bible. Um, and that's kind of like what I think the the whole endeavor of textual criticism is is doing. And people say, well, oh, why are they? Why don't they analyze Shakespeare this way? They do. There's, I mean, there's whole schools. Of thought that Somebody said that to me, too. They were like, well, it's more reliable than Shakespeare. I'm like, some people don't even think Shakespeare right. lived. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> like some people don't think yeah, Shakespeare I mean, existed. I mean, Homer. I mean, all kinds of debates about uh, yeah, I read, I mean, Antigone, there's like different, all kinds of different textual variants and like different translations come out all the time where people Honestly, make even with Dickens, and I mean, there are, there's people out there like are debating, debating that. So it's, um, yeah, they didn't necessarily have like the same technology to copy everything perfectly in, uh, even just right. a few hundred years ago, let alone in the ancient world. They basically are saying, oh, you're giving the Bible special scrutiny that you wouldn't give to anything else. And I think that's backwards yeah. because in reality, if you look at academia, they give massive scrutiny to like all literature like throughout history. And what, what, the, what the Christian who says that is really saying is we want the Bible to be in a special category where we can't analyze it and criticize it. Um, and so I think it's I think they have that backwards. And again, like to your point, which you like dutifully remind me of all the time, like they are the ones making these claims. So like the burden of proof is on them. They're saying this book is without error. And then when we say, well, what about this, that and the other thing? They get annoyed and say, well, why are you like putting so much scrutiny on it? <laughs> I mean, to me, it just seems kind of ludicrous. 
And it's a, I mean, it's a, it's crazy on so many levels because it's just like you can make a claim, but then not have to back it up because they can just say, well, not this. I'm talking about the original. Well, yeah, that's the, well, that's. And then you're like, yeah, but like, if what we really know is that it, it would be more likely to be changed from an error in the originals to what we have now than to an error I mean, in what we have now. Like, it, if, it just. If, if the doctrine of inerrancy basically states that the Holy Spirit is giving us the perfect words of God th- throughout history. And if the answer to that is, oh, well, we don't have the original, so we don't really know, then that it, in and of itself is an error. Like, that in and of itself yeah. is, a, is a big problem. Um, so, like I said, we have very, very little um, manuscript evidence of the New Testament going back you know, the first century of the church, like the first two centuries, I think like we, we might have, uh, you, you could listen to a textual scholar talk about it, but I think we have like a couple fragments, not much bigger than the size of a postage stamp from like the first 200 years of the church. So, yeah, I think the, there's something from John that's from the, either the third or fourth century. That's the oldest. And I think right. it's like tiny, like the size of quarter right. or something. So, like that. and again, the further back you go, the more errors they find in the transmission process. Granted, most of them are um, non-consequential spelling, spelling errors, etc. But again, we don't have... Think about how long 200 years is, um, and it's actually more than that, but think about how long that is. That's a long time from the time when these original books were written. That is like a caveat to get you to get them out of any kind of questioning. It's, it's a, another way for them to get themselves into the realm of unfalsifiability. It gets them into the realm of, we have no access to that, so I can't even talk about it. Um, and it's it's one of those frustrating things that no matter what you say, no matter what evidence you show, they always have some sort of an out. I mean, so growing up, like most people in the church, like I didn't hear this stuff, though. I didn't know that there were different... I mean, I wasn't even thinking about the Bible, aside from just the book that I held in church. I wasn't thinking about how it was produced or even that it was tied to these ancient documents. That just wasn't something that I had a concept of growing up. Um, I I think that um, once you understand the way that it was produced, so to start thinking about that, but also you can ask yourself basic questions or set set up basic premises of what you would think, if you're going to say the doctrine of inerrancy is true, how would it proceed throughout history? Well, you would have certain assumptions about it. And I think those assumptions would be things like there wouldn't be a lot of textual variants. These are basically the claims that they make. Contradictions or the variations are not things that are important, that they're 99% accurate to the original documents, which again, I don't know how they yeah, know yeah, that. We that don't have that the always frustrates documents. me when they make, um, oh, it's 90, they'll, they'll give a number, like 90, 98%. I know, it's crazy. Like, well, that's just, you're just pulling that out of the air. Like you don't know what that number actually is. But I think to yeah. your point, that, you know, another thing that they constantly say is, okay, the errors that you can find, they're all unimportant errors. And... That's yeah. where I think we're going to go in the next episode. That's a nice segue to talk about the church splits. Why has the church split? And, I, and I'm going to make the case that the church has split in many, many cases, maybe even the majority of cases, over these difficult readings. And like I said, whether it's an error or not, if the reader can't determine, and you have, you have scholars on both sides arguing both sides of these issues, it's clearly um, not a clear teaching, not a clear doctrine. And it's it's those errors that have led to um, church splitting all over the place. And we're going to talk about that in the next episode. Yeah, it's a fascinating subject. I think that uh, you live in your insulated world of theology um, and you read the verses that apply to the doctrines that you believe. Um, and I think that uh, you don't really come across the verses that are problematic for those doctrines, too. And I think that um, growing up, uh, the way that you look at other denominations and larger church splits was sort of like, well, are they even really believers? And how can they not see that they're wrong about this? It's so clear. Um, but it's not that clear. And uh, they're right. not really wrong. <laughs> 
nobody is or everybody everybody's is. wrong knows? everybody's right i always say that would be that would be the book i would write about this because again you can't nail everything in the bible down to one specific teaching and it's like it that fool's errand that has like completely divided the church This is False Witness, the segment where we take a look at four verses, three of which are real and one is false, planted mischievously by our producer, Diana. It's our job to analyze each verse and find the imposter. Once we have each made our choice, I will open the sealed envelope and reveal which verse is indeed the false witness. All right, number one, pray for us. For we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. Number two. Lord, in trouble they have visited you. They have poured out a prayer when your chastening was upon them. Number three. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. And finally, number four. Behold, my beloved brethren, remember the words of your God. Pray unto him continually by day, and give a thanks unto his holy name by night. Let your hearts rejoice. Okay. So as you read through these, Ben, this is incredibly difficult, (laughs) because to me, all four of these just read completely biblically. Yeah, uh, I guess I guess uh, we can always say that, but um, yeah, I feel like her skills, our producer's skills, are getting better and better with each segment, and uh, eventually she's gonna have us uh, baffled every time. It's really just a guess. I think that one seems really pretty real to me, although it could just be a combination of a couple real passages. But to me, it has the the ring of truth to it. I'm going to actually say two is the, uh, the false witness. I don't have a really great reasoning to think it, though. They could all really be real or they could all be fake. Yeah, so the only I, thing that stands out to me is number three. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. Um... It's talking about somebody praying in a specific place. It makes me think of the temple. And I just don't, I don't remember any talk about somebody um, praying in any specific place as having more significance than any other place in the Bible. I'm probably completely wrong about this, but I'm going to guess it's number three is the false witness. I think you might be right, actually. Yeah, after you heard my reasoning? No, I think for a different <laughs> reason. Because, like, it says, my ears, my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. Right. So, is this God speaking? It must be, right? Because his um, eyes will be open. Yeah, exactly. It would be God. This would be from the perspective of God. Because he's attentive to prayer that's being made in that one place. I'm assuming um, that there was somebody praying in a specific place. Yeah, he's probably that God is making holy. Yeah, you, I'm gonna say two still, I guess. It's not too late. You can change it. No, no, I'm gonna stick with two. Okay. So I'm opening up the wax sealed envelope from Diana, and I guess I'll start with number one and just go down the list. Number one. Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. This is biblical. It comes from Hebrews 13, verse 18. So yeah, we were all right about that. Biblical. This one is the one that Ben thinks is the false witness. Lord, in trouble they have visited you. They poured out a prayer when your chastening was upon them. This one comes from Isaiah 26, 16. So it is yeah. real. And then... Number three, the one that I think is the false witness. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. This comes from Second Chronicles 7.15. It is also biblical. Wow. 
The so, one that I thought was too perfectly constructed to be fake is actually fake. Yeah. Uh, so I'll read the fake one again. Um, Behold, my beloved brethren, remember the words of your God. Pray unto him continually by day and give thanks unto his holy name by night. Let your hearts rejoice. That comes from Second Nephi 9.52. <laughs> Do you know anything about Second Nephi? I don't. It's a book from the Book of Mormon. Ooh. God damn. <laughs> <laughs> I guess uh, if the Mormons come to our door, we probably shouldn't talk to them, John, or we'll end up uh, converting. Right. <laughs> <laughs> We're easily susceptible to the Mormon uh, message. Yeah, it's the second book in the Book of Mormon. Oh, so, um, right. I mean, that's still good advice. I mean, that Joseph Smith, though, he, I mean, he, he was good because I mean, I, this to I me sounds very biblical. So Diana got us the, um, the verse was actually a verse from, um, the second book in the book of Mormon. Uh, but I think it's interesting how Joseph Smith, who I believe wrote the book of Mormon, I don't believe it dropped out of heaven on golden tablets. And uh, yeah, it's really uh, persuasive. This sounds absolutely like something that um, would come from the Bible. Yeah, I mean, uh, we obviously don't want to go on a tangent about Mormonism, but some at some point we maybe can have a conversation about it even on the show because it is kind of uh, interesting the way it's sort of... Uh, I know we've had conversations before about how they Americanized Christianity... Um, and set it into a new, a new uh, environment, new setting, and changed the whole, uh, the whole thing. So yeah, it is very interesting. But Diana fooled us, uh, and the Book of Mormon fooled me. Um, ben, I think we have time to do a quick segment of Bible versus Bible. What do you think? Go for it. And now it's time for Bible versus Bible. <laughs> Welcome to Bible versus Bible. Uh, today we have a alleged contradiction um, from the book of Acts, and we will discuss it and see if we think it has any merit. Again, with, with any of these, we uh, welcome your input, and please uh, let us know your thoughts on the issue or if there's something we miss. John, before you start, I just want people to remember that any contradiction is innocent until proven guilty. Right. This is just an allegation of contradiction. We're not uh, pronouncing right. any judgment. We'll leave do, that up to the do courts. Do we need to, to read decide. anybody their rights or anything? No, I don't think we're Mirandizing yeah. anyone, if that's what you're asking me. I just think it's important that we uh, state you know, that we're not prejudging uh, the guilt or innocence of uh, said Totally agree. contradiction. Yeah, this contradiction will be judged <laughs> by a jury of his peers right. of other contradictions. Right. Or alleged contradictions, I should say. Last time we talked about an internal contradiction uh, in John. And what was interesting about that is it was in the farewell discourse in John. And it was internal to the book of John. So a lot of the contradictions that we talk about are going to be one gospel versus another gospel. But this is another one um, similar to what we did last time because both of these um, come from the book of Acts. So the book of Acts describes the conversion of Paul. And in Acts 9-7, it states, The men which journeyed with Paul stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. So this is talking about Paul's conversion and a, a great light uh, shown from heaven and um, Paul heard this voice uh, and this is really uh, the pivotal moment in Paul's life um, how he ultimately converted to Christianity but then we have the same story again in Acts 22 this time it's Paul himself um, describing what happened and he says and they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid but they heard not the voice of him that spoke to me. So it seems to be a contradiction here because in Acts 9, 7, the people that were with Paul, they heard the voice. But in Acts 22, 9, they did not hear the voice. What are your thoughts, Ben? 
Um, it's interesting. I these internal contradictions are always fascinating to me because so Luke is um, we think uh, historically supposed to be a, a traveling companion of Paul, right? Um, and so if let's assume that okay. that tradition is true, right? Just for the sake of argument, you would think that his uh, idea of the conversion would be based on Paul's testimony and then his retelling of Paul telling about his conversion would be from Paul. Um, so it's just weird. It's, it's strange. So it's a problem for inerrancy. It definitely seems like a contradiction to me. I would put it in the the category of not that important, I don't think, um, as far as just the details go. But it's strange. I would like to know. I don't know if you have any insight from a commentary or anything. So what, what I see is that um, I don't have it in front of me, but the Greek word for um, hear it, or heard is um, basically the same word for understood. So I've heard apologists get out of this by saying, well, in one account, it's basically saying the men with him did not understand the voice. Um, and the other account basically says, yeah, they heard, they heard it, but didn't understand it. And because that word is interchangeable, um, there's certainly nothing wrong with, um, with saying that that's a possibility. I mean, there's, you can't say that they're wrong when they say that. I think that they're only interpreting it like that to get out of this contradiction because they, the same word is used in the exact same context. And you would have to say... The that's, first, what <clears throat> that's what I was going to say. So in one context, I mean, that yeah. seems like a total cop-out. Or, you know what I mean? Like, he, like in, one, in one case, he's saying they didn't, they didn't hear, right. but they understood. I mean, in, in Acts 9-7, it clearly says, um, the men which journeyed with Paul stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And then, in, again, in uh, Acts 22-9, the men saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him. So you, what you would have to say is in Acts 22-9, you would have to say, uh, in Paul saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they understood not the voice of him. So they would be using the word in a very different way. The same exact word in the same exact context. I don't have any problem if you're interpreting it like really that, if you have a, a reason to do it other than trying to get out of a contradiction. Like if, there, if you have a textual reason to think that that's probably the way it should be translated. But I do have a fundamental problem with translating verses differently just because you're committed to the doctrine of inerrancy yeah you're literally letting the 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 doctrine do the translating for you because to me that makes it much more problematic that he uses the same word in a different way in the same story telling the same story now if he used that same word in different contexts different ways throughout the the book which like i wouldn't have a problem with that um maybe there's a clear theological reason why paul is using the word when he's using it to tell his own testimony that way but that's sort of i think that's a presupposition that luke is like quoting paul exactly i i don't know if that really is even a road i want to go down I just find it really odd that he would use the word. Yeah. I think I agree with you. Like you're basically interpreting that because it's a problem for the other verse. Yeah, and I think that's like a, an incorrect way to do. Um, yeah, that shouldn't be the right. way that you do interpretation. Um, really, if you want to do good biblical scholarship, it should be the opposite. <clears throat> when you find a problem, you shouldn't let yourself get out of it that easy. So I looked at every translation of the Bible um, on my Bible app and all of them that I saw, and there's, there's a lot more, but I looked at um, seven or eight of the biggest one, the ESV, the King James, etc., And they all have it as a contradiction where exactly the way it reads in what I read, um, except for the new American standard version, which in, in uh, Acts 22, nine, it says, and those who, 
those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. So it, and then, and then there's a little note here um, that says, or here. So, you know, the, so, so to me, I don't know, I don't want to like accuse anybody of anything, but to me, it definitely seems like the new American standard is trying to get out of that problem because they, in, they like you interpreted the same Greek word in two different ways. Um, and, and, you know, like to answer your point a little bit about, I don't know why the author of Acts would leave that in there, et cetera. Well, anybody that writes a book now a modern book, you're going to have stuff like that all over the place, right? And you have editors that go through it. And even even with like really good editors, like things are missed sometimes. And when you're talking about an ancient document like the book of Acts, it didn't have that same process that like a modern book has. So I can totally see how um, an error like, like that got in there. You're not necessarily going back and fact-checking every little detail I mean, this is the type of thing you you could probably give a person the book of Acts to tell them, read it through six times and they'll never come up with that. You know, they'll never notice that contradiction. Um, so I can definitely see it the type of thing that just kind of remained in the text um, and and got passed down to the way we have it. It would be interesting to look at, again, in the manuscript tradition and see if there were any scribes that tried to correct it. But um I think sometimes we almost like assume that an author, like one author of his own book can't make any mistakes. And I think that is actually a pretty valid explanation of what happened is just told the story a little differently when he got to uh, chapter 22. Yeah. I mean, it's not probably, I don't know what Luke's uh, writing process was too, but he may not have been accumulating all this stuff at one sitting too. It may have been over time and, piecing stuff together and uh, doing a collective editing himself where he wasn't necessarily able to or uh, have the perfect conditions to uh, check every single word uh, and every single detail. And I think it's, yeah, I mean, so one thing that the New American Standard, one of the things that's problematic about that is, I mean, again, I think that in seminary, what they teach is usually if you have some sort of a textual variation um the more problematic uh reading is is usually the one that's the more original there's a a whole line of thinking behind that but usually it's because um there there was a sort of a process of editing but it was like a longer process and involved scribes like you said and sometimes they were crossing stuff out and people weren't allowing them to edit it out and sometimes they were editing stuff out and sometimes they were adding commentary notes on the margins and um so there was a lot that was going on as they were as they were being copied again like we always say like just understanding that this is a human creation and when we when we come across things like this, it makes total sense from the standpoint of this is a human being writing a book. It's just the only time it becomes any sort of an issue is when you put this attribute of perfection on it that the author never probably even realized that um, they were supposed to be living up to. Yeah, I mean, it's really a problem I think a lot of these contradictions really become a problem for a doctrine of inerrancy. And I think part of what we're trying to say is that that doctrine has its own problems, but that it's not that it's not that it's not that old of a doctrine. It's not like something that's from the church uh, in its earliest days. So I think questioning it is perfectly acceptable Um, and uh, and within uh, our rights. I, my take on it is that it's a genuine contradiction. I think it's a genuine error um, of some sort. And um, I don't know. I'm, I'm very open to this possibly just being a, uh, a transcribal problem. Uh, like I certainly don't have any evidence as to the explanation for why. But again, I, I typically judge these things kind of like on the surface reading because I think that um, even most Christians would agree that like that the Bible should make sense to just normal non-scholars. And to me, just reading that on the surface in both English and in Greek, it seems to be a contradiction on the surface. But um, I'm very open to being wrong. So again, please write in, um, hit us up on Twitter, 
and check out our Patreon. Stay with us for our next episode, which will continue on the theme of inerrancy, and we'll get into uh, church splits and how the doctrine of inerrancy has impacted the church through the centuries. The Skeptics Bible Project is a John and Ben production with intro music by John Lobker. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project and follow us on all social media platforms at Skeptics Project. Got questions or comments? Email us at skepticsbibleproject at gmail.com. Thank you.